Welcome to episode 242 of Greater Than Code. I'm here with my friend, Jessica Kerr. Thanks, Rain. And I'm excited because today we are here with Trond Hrotelan. Trond is an IT architect and aspiring socio-technical systems designer from the consulting firm Scienta.no. That's no as in the country code for Norway, not no as in no science. Tron has many years of experience with large, complex, business-critical systems as like a developer and an architect and the middleware and the back end. So he's super interested in service orientation, domain-driven design. Ooh, I like that one. Event-driven architectures and, of course, socio-technical systems, which is our topic today. These happen in industries across the world like telecom, media, TV, government. Tron's mantra is, Great products emerge from collaborative sense making and design. I concur. Tron, welcome to Greater Than Code. Thank you for having me. It's fun being here. Tron, like as like a Northern European, I know our usual question about superpowers makes you nervous. So let me change it up a little bit. What is the superpower of sociotechnical system design? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I'm glad you turned it over because uh, we are uh, from the land of the Yante, as you <laughs> may, may have heard of, where people are not supposed to be anything uh, better than uh, anybody else. So uh, being a superhero, that's not uh, something that we are accustomed to, so to speak. No, so uh, the topic, the social system, what, what makes you a superhero uh, by, do, by uh, having that perspective? I think it is the... It's in the name, really. So you have to, you actually join the social and the technical aspects of things. When when we when you I mean whatever you do, but my uh, focus is mainly in organizations uh, and and in in relation to, for example, team cooperating, uh, designing systems, uh, IT solutions, and stuff like that. That you have to consider both the social and the technical. Uh, and I find that we have too much. Uh, I have definitely done that. Focus too much on the technical aspects and not ignoring the social aspects. But uh, at least when we're designing stuff, we frequently uh, get too attached to the technical aspects. So I think we need that balance. So yeah, that we, is, we, I guess, my guess a superhero I get from that. When we do software design, we think we're designing software, which we think is made of technical code and infrastructure and that software is made by people and for cool. people and imagine that mm-hmm. social exactly. side matters yeah and and uh, i must say that since agile um but in the early 2000s i mean the focus on the user has been sort of increasing uh, so i think it that's better covered than it used to be but mm-hmm. I still think we miss out on the the we part that we create software and that is the humans that actually create software so uh, we often talk about the customer, for example. Uh, so uh, I guess many of, of your listeners are creating software systems that actually the customers are using, like there's an end user somewhere. Uh, but frequently, there's also internal users of that system that you create, like backend users, or there's a, so there, there, there's a wide range of other uh, stakeholders as well. And they Internal need to users taken. of customer-facing systems? For example, yes. Like back office, for example. Uh, I'm working for a, for a fairly large uh, telecom uh, operation, and of course, their main goal is getting and keeping uh, end users, customers, pay paying customers. But there's also a lot of stuff going on in the back end, 
in the back office, like uh, supporting customer service support. Uh, there is uh, delivery of, of equipment to, to the users. There's shipment. There is like uh, maintenance of that stuff. There is uh, assurance. So th- there's a lot of stuff going on in that domain that we rarely think of when we create our IT systems, I find at least. But we're ma- when we're making our software systems, we're building the company. We're building the next version of this company. And that includes how well can people in the back office do their jobs? Exactly. Exactly. And, and us. Like we're also mm-hmm. creating the next version of software that we need to change and maintain and keep running and respond to problems in. I, I like to think about the developer interface. Of exactly. And that's actually it was an area where we have sort of the, where the social technical term has popped up probably more frequently than before. It's, it's actually that because we think of team topologies, we need to organize the teams around, for example, services and stuff like that. So, so that is one. You said. Yeah, team topologies is, uh, has uh, go one. into this this stuff, right? Yeah. So uh, there is, the, uh, we are looking into that stuff. We are, we are sort of getting knowledge on how to do that. But we, I, I find we still are, are not seeing the whole picture, though. Uh, I mean, yes, that is important to get the teams right because they want you want them to not interact too much, but enough. Right. Mm. So you want to. Oh yeah, I love that that book conference. says collaboration is not the goal. Collaboration no, exactly. is expensive and it's a negative to need to do it, but sometimes you need to. Exactly. So uh, we are. So then we are back to sort of the so uh, the main system thinking idea is, is that you have a system consisting of parts, and what social technical systems focus a lot about is the social system, right? There, there is a social system here, and that social system, those parts are us as developers, and those are parts are stakeholders, those parts are users. So, and then you get into this this idea of an open system. Uh, I think it was uh, Bertolantri who coined that, that or looked into that. Uh, from Those versus Bertolantri. open systems. Open system, yeah. So, so, Fair so, warning to readers. All of us have been reading this book, Critical Systems Thinking and the Management of Complexity by Michael mm-hmm. C. Jackson. And we may name drop a few systems thinking historical figures. Yes. And Bertlanffy is one of, the, one of those early ones. Uh, I think he actually developed some of his idea before the war, but he, I think he wrote the book after. I'm not sure when, of the 50s or something. Uh, on the general system thinking, and just get general systems theory. So, uh, and and he was also looking into this open system thing, and and I think this is also something that, uh, for example, Russell Akov took into <laughs> took to heart. So, uh, so he he defined four type of systems. He said there was a there was a, a, a sort of a mechanical system, like no people would think of when they heard system, like it's a technical thing, like a machine, for example, your car is a system. Uh, but then he also added there is something more. Uh, there's another type of system, which is animate system, which is basically us. So we are, we consist of parts, but we have a purpose. That's saying that is different from us than a car. That makes us different. And then you take a lot of those parts and combine them. Then you get a social system. So the interesting thing with a social system is that that, that system in of its own have a purpose, but also the parts have a purpose. That's distinguishes the other from the other two. Right. So for an animate system, the, your parts doesn't have a purpose. I mean, your heart doesn't really have a purpose, right? It, it's not giving a purpose. It oh, doesn't have an end goal, so to speak. There, there, there's nothing. It moves. No, it has a purpose within the larger system. Yeah. But it doesn't have like self-actualization. It's not purposeful. That's what probably the words that your I heart is. isn't sitting there thinking, going beep, beep, yeah. <laughs> beep. I mean, it does that, but it's not thinking it. No, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so. 
I think actually Akov and uh, I think was uh, there was a book called On Purposeful Systems, which I recommend. It's really a dense book. Uh, so uh, yeah, the Jackson book is it, it's it's long, but it's quite verbose, so it's readable. Like the purposeful system is designed to be short and concise, so it's basically just a list of bullet points almost. It's like it's just a really hard read. But uh, they get into the difference between a purposeful system and a goal-seeking system. So. Uh, your heart would be goal seeking. It has something. It has something to 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 achieve, but it, it doesn't have a purpose in a sense. So that's the thing which is the, then the uh, you you as a person and you as a as a part of a social system. And that's where I think the interesting thing comes in. And that that's where where social technical system really take takes this on board. Is that in a social system you have a set of individuals, and you also have a technical aspects of those system as well. So that's the social technical thing then. Um, right. You mentioned. Ekhoff said four kinds of systems, mechanical, yeah. animate, social. And then there's ecological. And then ecological things. Yeah. So the ecological one is that where every part ha- have a purpose like us, but the, 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 the whole doesn't have a purpose on its own. Like the yeah. humankind is not purposeful. We wish it should be probably. <laughs> For example, with climate change and all that, but uh, we are not necessarily. Purposeful. This actually r- relates a little bit to the origins of socio-technical systems because it came about as a way to improve workplace democracy. And if you look at the history of management theory, if you look at Taylorism, which was the dominant you know, theory at the time, the whole point of Taylorism is to take purposefulness away from the workers. So the manager decides on the tasks, the manager decides how the tasks are done. There's one right way to do the tasks and the worker just does those actions, right? Basically turning the worker into a machine. Mm -hmm. And so Taylorism was effectively a way to take a social system, you know, a firm, a company and try to turn it into an animate system where the managers had purpose and the workers just fulfilled a purpose. Exactly. And socio-technical systems said, what if we give the power of purposefulness back to the workers? Mm -hmm. Let them choose the task. Let them choose the way they do their tasks. Exactly. Uh, And this is a a sort of an interesting uh, thing because uh, uh, at the same time as uh, Taylor was developing his ideas, I mean, there were other people having similar ideas like social-technical, but they never heard, I mean, we heard of it, heard of them later, like... uh, Mary uh, Mary Parker Foley, for example, she was yeah. uh, she was living at the same time, writing stuff at the same time. But I mean, the industry wasn't interesting to listen to her because they didn't, it didn't fit their machine model. She did. She was the uh, contrary to them. And this was the same thing that social technical system designers act or uh, researchers, to put it more correctly, uh, also uh, experienced. For example, in uh, post-war England, in the coal mines. Oh they yeah, yeah. Observed- Tell us about the coal mines. Yeah, that, that's because that's where sort of the whole solar technical system uh, theory was defined, or was the first uh, coined. What was there? There was a, a set of researchers from the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, which actually uh, came about like a offshoot of the Tavistock Clinic, which was working with, with actually uh, with the war, war uh, um, people struggling with war from the war after the Second World War. So that they, they were helping. Way? And uh, no, that was actually in England. That was in London. Oh, okay. That's okay. It is in London. Yeah. So it was an offshoot of that because uh, there were there were researchers there who had noticed that there was something specific about the groups. There was uh, somebody somebody called Bayon, and there was uh, Kurt Levine, which I'm, I'm think you Jessica probably have heard was of. Was that Kurt Lewin? Yes, that's the one. That's oh, he, yeah, he was a psychologist. 
Yeah. So he was very, uh, he, uh, I mean, uh, for example, uh, our main character of the social technicist movement in, in England in the post-war was Eric Trist. And he was working closely with Levin, or Lewin, as the American call him. So uh, they, they were inspired by the, so the human relations movement, if you like. So, so they, they saw that they had to look into the, to how the people interact. So they observed the miners in England. There was a couple of mines where they, they have introduced some new technology called the long wall, where they actually tried to industrialize the mining. So they have taken, they have gone from autonomous groups into more industrialized, like uh, so uh, tailorism. Yes, they had gone all tailorism. Correct. Uh, your purpose is to be a pair of hands that does this. Exactly, and then I put uh, like uh, they have shifts. So one shift was doing one thing, the other shift was doing a second thing, and the third shift was doing a, a third thing. So they were separating people. They were they had they had been working in groups before. Then they were separated to industrialize, like to get efficiently out of each part. Oh, to like group like tasks with each other Mm -hmm. so that you only have one set of people to do a single thing. Yeah. So one group was like uh, preparing and blowing and uh, sort of breaking out the coal. Somebody was pushing it out to the conveyors and somebody else was moving the instrument or the sort of the the machinery to the next place. So this is what sort of the three uh, part part shifts, if you like. So th- what I noticed then, they didn't get the efficiency that they expected from this. And also people were leaving. People were very, didn't like this, this way working. There, there was a lot of uh, absenteeism and, and, and uh, there were a lot of crowds and uproar. And yeah, yeah it, it, it didn't go well, this new technology, which they had to high hopes for. So then Trist and a couple of others like Bamford uh, observed something that happened in one of the mines here. That people actually, some of the some of them self-organized and went back to the previous way of working in like in autonomous teams, but using this new technology. So they self-organized in order to to actually to be able to work in this uh, this environment. So this was the first time that I saw this type of action that they actually created their own semi-autonomous teams, as they called them. So there was some technology that was introduced, and yeah. when they tried to make it about the technology and get people to use it the way they thought it would be most efficient, it was not effective. But yet not the, effective the people working people. in teams were able to use the technology? Yeah, actually, so this is the interesting part. Is that when you have clump, uh, complex systems, they, uh, then uh, you can have self-organization happening there. And these workers, they were so frustrated that, okay, let's take uh, matters in our own hand. Let's create groups that, where we can actually work together. So they created these autonomous groups. And this was something that Eric Tristan and Bamford observed. So they saw that when you did that, the absenteeism and uh, sort of the, the, the quality of work life increased a lot. And also productivity increased a lot. So... There was a few mines observed where they did this, and they compared to other mines that didn't. And they were, they, I mean, the numbers was quite uh, convincing. So you should think that oh, this would diffuse them. Everybody would start using this approach. No, they didn't. Because management and leadership didn't want this. They were afraid they were losing their power, so they worked against it. So uh, just after a few research uh, attempts, they actually had to, there wasn't any, any, uh, any leverage there. And actually, they increased uh-huh. the industrialization with a next level of, of uh, invention was created and made it even worse. So it's it kind of grinded to a halt. So social technology was sort of defined there, but it didn't have the good uh, fertile ground to grow. So that's when they came to my native uh, land, to Norway. Ah. Yeah, so uh, Emery, Fred Emery was one of those who worked with the uh, Trist back then. Uh, also Trist himself actually came to Norway uh, as part of a 
as a sort of almost like a governmental uh, project. There was a in, uh, Norwegian uh, industrial democracy program, I think it was called. It was actually established. There by, was a Norwegian uh, industrial, industrial democracy, democracy program. program. Yes. That is so like not American. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so that so that probably could probably only happen in like Nordics, I suppose. And that was that is basically there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is especially is that we struggled with the industry after the war because I mean we weren't uh, we were just uh, invaded by Germany and was under rule, so we had nothing to sort of to build. So they got support from America, for example, uh, to sort of to rebuild after the war. But also Norwegians are a specific uh, type of persons, if you like. They don't like to be ruled over. So in so the industrial the high industrial stuff. Didn't go uh, down well with uh, with the workers, even worse than in England, but not in mines because we don't have any mines. So just uh, uh, like uh, creating nails or uh, like uh, paper mills and all that, the same thing happened in Norway as it did in England. The people were not happy with the way these things were going. But the problem is in Norway is that this rises all the way. This was covering all of Norway, not just a few mines here and there. So this was actually going all the way up to the to the sort of the. The workers' unions was collaborating with the employers' unions, so they were actually coming together. So this project was established by these two, so uh, in collaboration. And actually, the government was also coming in. So there were three parts to this uh, initiative. And then the Tavistock was called in to help them with this project or the program, to call it. So uh, then I started a few uh, experiments and all, and then I went more. Uh, so in England, they observed mostly, like the the, the type of stuff. And then in Norway, they actually started designing these type of systems, total technical systems, the autonomous work groups and all that. So they did uh, live experiments, if like. So that was this was action research uh, as a way of doing research. research. Yeah, we actually do research uh, on the ground. This was something. This was also something from Kurt uh, Levine, I believe. Yeah, so uh, so in Norway they did a lot of research there and got the similar similar results as uh, as in England, but uh, and also this went a bit further in Norway and this actually went into the law how to do this. So uh, like uh, worker participation, uh, for example, and also there was also some um, uh, this this work design uh, thing that came out of it. It's like uh, workers have some demands that goes above just our uh, livable wage. They wanted a job that meant something, right? They were they were supposed to grow. They were supposed to learn on the job. They were supposed to. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of stuff that they wanted that was added added to actually the law. So this is part of Norwegian law today. What came out of that research? You mentioned that in Norway they started doing design, and yet there's the implication that it's design of self-organizing teams. Does that mm. conflict? Like design yes. from above versus self-organization? It did. And that is also something that I discovered in Norway. So they're well, well observed. Uh, this, this is actually what happened in Norway. They saw that. And so the researchers saw that they were struggling to getting this accepted properly by the workers. So then I saw, okay, they had to get the workers involved. So then they started with this, what they call participative design. So Ooh. the workers were pulled in to design the work that they were going to do together with the researchers. But the researchers were still regarded as, as experts still. So there was a, a divide between the researchers and uh, the workers. But the workers were given a lot of uh, free will to, to sort of design how they wanted this to work themselves. So, uh, I mean, the, one of the latest uh, experiments, the, I think the workers were given full, full freedom to design a, uh, 
there was I think there was a there was an aluminium uh, industry. Uh, I think they created the, they were creating a new factory, and the, this and the workers were part of designing how they should work in that factory, that new this this new factory. So this was so they saw that they couldn't just come in and this is how it works in the mines in England. This is how we're going to do it. That didn't work in a way. And one of the things that they found was that these systems were more adaptable than Taylorism. So there, there was one, uh, one of these programs in textile mills in India that had been organized according to scientific management, aka Taylorism. And what they found, one of the problems was that if any perturbation happened, any unexpe- unexpected event, they stopped working. They couldn't, they couldn't adapt. Uh, and when they switched to these self-organizing teams, they became better at adaptation, but they also just got more production and, and higher quality. So it was just a win all around. You're not trading off here, it turns out. Mm-hmm. You can say we need resilience because of incidents, but in fact, that resilience also gives you a lot of flexibility that you didn't know you needed. Exactly. You you you, uh, you are capable of taking in stuff that you didn't you couldn't foresee. Like anything yeah. that happens, because the people know people on the ground who know the who know this West best and actually have all the information they need are actually a- able to adapt them a lot better than yeah. you have a structured like a well processed thing. Mm. One of the principles of resilience engineering is that accidents are normal work. Mm-hmm. Accidents happen as a result of normal work, which means that normal work has all of the char- same characteristics. So normal work requires adaptation. Normal work requires Balancing trade-offs, competing goals. That's all normal work. It just, mm-hmm. we see it in incidents because incidents shine a light on what happened. Exactly. I think it was the, there was an American called Passport who uh, I think coined this really well. It's that the SDS design was intended to produce a win-win-win. <laughs> Human beings were more committed. Technology operated closer to its potential. And the organization performed better overall while adapting more readily to changes in its environment. This is pretty much yeah. coining what SDS is all about. I'm, I'm always on the lookout because they're rare for these solutions that are just strictly better in a particular space. Mm. You know, where you're not making trade-offs, where you get to have it all. That's almost unheard of. It's almost unheard of. And yet, I feel like we could do a lot of more of it. Who is it who talks about dissolving the problem? Acoff. Yeah, that was Acoff. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's Acoff yeah. in... Um, yeah. Yeah, I Idealized design. Yeah. So the, the best way to solve a problem is to redesign mm-hmm. the system that contains it so that the problem no longer exists. Yeah, exactly. And in software, what are some examples of that? But we have a lot. Like There are places have- where we dissolve coordination problems by saying the same team is responsible for deployment. Mm. I've seen problem architectures be dissolved by a change in the product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It turns out that a better way to do it for users also makes possible a better architecture that you can, and so you can stop solving that hard problem that was really expensive. Oh, right, right. So, like the example of item potency of complete order buttons, if you yeah. move the ID generation to the client, that problem just goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I also see another example is, for example, if you have two teams that does uh, work well together. <laughs> so, so management coming. Oh, you have to communicate more. Uh, okay, but th- that doesn't help because that's not where our problem is. So, if you redesign 
the teams, for example, then if they instead of having front and back end teams, if you redesign and have no verticals, then you have mm-hmm. re- resolved. You haven't solved the problem. You have resolved it. It's gone because mm-hmm. they are together now in one team. So yeah, there, I think there is a lot of examples of this, but it is kind of a mind shift because people tend to say if there is something problem, they want to. Uh, uh, Analyze it as it is, and then figure out how to fix the parts. And yeah, then yeah, this is our obsession with solving problems. Yes, solving exactly. problems is not systems thinking. Nope, it's not. Solving problems exactly. is reactive. It feels productive. It can be heroic, whereas the much more subtle and often wider scope of removing the problem, which often falls into the social system, when you, when you change the social system, you can resolve technical problems so that they don't exist that's Mm. a lot more congressive and challenging and slower it is and 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 that is probably where sds has struggled uh i mean it didn't struggle as much in norway but that is also here but uh, the rest of the world is because you have to fight there is a system already in place and that system is honed in on solving problems as you say that coal mine management wants to solve the problem by telling them what workers what to do. And it's more important that their solution work than that a solution works. Yes, exactly. And also because they are put in a system where that's normal for that, that, that is common sense to them. Right. So I often come back to that demi quote is that uh, so a good person is beaten by a bad system any day or something like that. Is that when you, because a person in a company, he's just a small, I, in this large company, I'm just a small little tiny piece of it. There's no chance in any way that I can, that I I can change it. So. Yeah. mm. So as developers, one reason that we focus on technical solutions and Mm. technical design is because we have some control over that. Yes. We don't feel control. Over the social system, which is because you can never control a social system, you can only influence it. Mm-hmm. So what uh, what I try to do in, in an organization is that I try to find a change agents around in organizations, so I get a broader picture, not, not only understanding it, but also a broad, broad, broader set of attacks, if you like it. I'm not calling it attacks, but you know, <laughs> you get my idea. So you can create a, a sort of a more profound change, not just a little bit here, a little bit there. Because when you change, as you said, if we solve problems, we focus on the parts. And we focus on the parts, we are not going to fix the whole. That is something that of uh, was very bad man about, and, and he's completely correct. You can optimize wait, every wait, who, part. Wait, Akko, I sorry. Akko. Akko. That was Akko. Yeah. Okay. So if you optimize yeah. every part, you doesn't necessarily make the system better. He said, thank God, you should, usually you don't make it worse, he says. Yeah. <laughs> he uses the example of you want to make a car, so you take the best engine and the best transmission, and you take all the best parts, and you, what do you have? You don't have a car. You don't have the best car. You don't even have a car because the parts don't fit together. Parts. Yeah. It's entirely possible to make every part better and to make the system worse. And you also sometimes need to make a part worse to make the system better. Mm-hmm. And that is fascinating. I think that is absolutely fascinating uh, that you have to do that. And I just seen that just recently. You have, for example, in organization I'm at, we have one team that is really good at agile. They have they, they have sort of nailed it almost this team, but the rest of the organization are not as high level and good at agile. And they and the organization is not drilled to be agile in a sense, right? Because it's an old, old project oriented organization, right? So it's, 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 it is industrialized in a sense. Then you have one team that want to do like SDS, that want to be like an agile the super team. But when they, when they don't fit with the rest, they actually make the rest worse. 
So actually, in order to make it the whole better, you can't have this local optimizations. You have to see the whole, and then you figure out how to make the whole better based on the part, not the other way around. Yeah, because, because well, one, that self-organizing agile team can't do that properly without having an impact on the rest of the organization. Exactly. And when mm-hmm. the rest of the organization moves much more slowly, mm. you need a team in there that's slower. Mm. And I see this happen. I see agile teams moving too fast that the business isn't ready to accept that many changes so quickly. So we mm. need a slower, I mean, they don't think of it this way. But what they no. do is they add people. They mm-hmm. add people, that is- and that slows everything down. And so you have a system that's twice as expensive in order to go slower. That's yeah. my theory. The fascinating thing, that that's the, uh, and, and this is where the, so the system idea comes in, is that if you have this team that really honed this, that they have nailed the, the whole thing, agility, and they're moving as fast as they can and all that, but the rest of the organization is not, then you have to interact with the rest of the organization, for example. Mm-hmm. So they, they have been bottlenecked everywhere they look. So what they end up doing is that they pull in work, more work than they necessarily can pull through because they have to, because they, you know, unless they just have to sit waiting. And, and then you have nobody a feels, of progress. Exactly. Yeah. So then you then make you it work for yourself. Then you get anything done. Exactly. Yeah. So even, even a well-working team would actually break in the end because of this. And we've, yes. we've organized organizations around part maximization. You know, yeah. every way of organizing a business we know of is anti-systemic because they're all about part optimization. OKR is a list of parts. Yeah. And can you imagine going to a director and saying, listen, to make this company better, we need to reduce your scope, we need to reduce your budget, we need to reduce your staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that is a hard sell. <laughs> Yeah, it is almost impossible. So um, where I've seen it work, no, I haven't seen that many, but uh, where I've seen it work, you have, to, you have to have some systemic change coming all the way from the top, basically. Somebody has to come in and say, okay, we need to, this is going to be painful, but we have to change. The whole thing has to change. I mean, that is, and very few companies want to do that because that's high risk. <laughs> Why would you do that? So so they shirk along doing that minor problem solving here and there and try to fix the things, but yeah, they are not getting the systemic change that they probably need. Yeah. And this is why one of the reasons why startups wind up eating the lunch of bigger mm-hmm. companies, because startups aren't starting from a place that's wrong for what they're now doing. Exactly. They are free to do. They, they have all the freedom that we want the SDS team to have, the autonomous uh, uh, social technical systems teams. Those are startups. So ideally, you would have a company consisting of a lot of startups. And this this gets back to this idea of open systems uh, and mm-hmm. the idea of organizationally closed but structurally open. Yep. It comes from Matron and, and Varela. And this idea is that an organization, which is the idea of the organization, you know, IBM as an organization is the idea of IBM. It's not any particular people, right? Mm. IBM stays IBM, but it has to reproduce its structure. And it can reproduce its structure in ways that change, build new structure, different structure, but IBM is still IBM, right? Yeah. But organizations aren't static. And actually, mm. they have to reproduce themselves to adapt. Mm. And one of, one of the things that I think makes startups better here is that their ability to change their structure as they produce it, they have much more agility. Whereas mm. a larger organization with much more structure, it's hard to just take this structure and just move it all over here. Exactly. Because all the other pieces of the system fit with the current system. Yeah. You have to change every part in order to move. 
Right. And, and right. also the identity of a startup is somewhat fluid. You know, startups can pivot. Can right. you imagine or IBM switching yeah. to become a car company or something? Exactly. I was thinking exactly the same. You only see pivots in small startups. Pivots are not normal in large organizations. That would be a, a no-go. Even if you come and suggested it, I hear there's a lot of money being earned there. Mm, they wouldn't. Because they would risk everything they have for something that is hypothetical. They wouldn't do it. I mean, startups so every part of them. Their employees can turn over 100%. They can get a new CEO. They can get new investors. All on a much faster time scale. That was also, uh, I mean, the, the whole, uh, this is uh, going back to Akofer, and he's saying that we need to go get out of the machine age. Like he said, we have been in the machine age since the Renaissance. We have to get out of that. And this is what system thinking is. It's a new age, as he called it. Uh, somebody calls it the information age, for example. There's similar things, but we need to start thinking differently of how, how to solve problems. The machine has to go at least for social systems. I mean, the machine is still going to be there. We're going to work with machines. We're going to create machines. So the we machine use machines, but our systems are bigger than that. Yeah, systems exactly. are more interesting than any machine. And yeah. yeah, when we try to build systems as machines, we really limit ourselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that, that was also, also one of the, I don't know if it's a specific principle before SDS, that they said that uh, man shouldn't be an extension uh, of the machine. It should be a, it should be a, also uh, uh, it shouldn't be a part of the machine. It should be using the machine. It should be uh, like an extension of the machine. Wait. So, yeah. The man shouldn't be an extension of the machine. The machine should be an extension of man. Yeah. Right. This which, actually which shows when you have up, a really good tool, you feel that. This actually shows up in uh, joint cognitive systems, which shares a lot with socio-technical systems, as this idea that there are some tools through which you perceive the world that augment you, and there are other hmm. tools that represent the world. That are so. Some tools are, are sort of inside you, and you use them to interact with the world. You interact with the world using them to augment your abilities. And there are other tools that you have just a box here that represents the world and you interact with the box and your understanding of the world is constrained by what the box gives you. Hmm. And these are two completely different forms of tool making. And what Stafford beer, I think might say is that there are tools that augment your, your variety that augment your ability to manage complexity. And there are tools that reduce complexity. There are tools that attenuate complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gene Yang was talking about this the other day with respect to developer tools. There are tools like Heroku that reduce mm-hmm. complexity for you. You're like, just just deploy the thing, just deploy it. Mm-hmm. And and internally, Heroku is dealing with a lot of complexity in order to give you that abstraction. And then there are other tools like Honeycomb that expose complexity. Mm-hmm. And, and let help you uh, deal with the complexity inherent in your system. Yeah. Uh, just to just to go back to so I get this uh, quote right is that the individual is is treated uh, as a complementary to the machine rather than an extension of it. Yeah. Wait, what is treated yeah. as complementary to the machine? The the individual the the, individual. the person yeah the person. Right. So so because that is what you see in like in uh, machine shops. And that is also what happened in England when they so when the coal mining got again even more industrialized. People are just an extension of the machine. We don't work so more like that. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like that sometimes. I must admit that I'm part of a machine. <laughs> that I'm that I'm just a cog in, in the machine, and, I, and we are not uh, well equipped to be cogs in machines. 
I think. Uh, we should be. Yeah. Joint cognitive systems calls this the embodiment relation mm-hmm. where the artifact is sort of transparent and it's a part of the operator rather than the application. So you, you can view the world through it, um, but it doesn't restrict you. And then the other side is the, the hermeneutic relation. So hermeneutics is like biblical hermeneutics is about the interpretation of the Bible. So the hermeneutic relation is where the artifact interprets the world for you. And then you view the artifact. Mm. So like, for example, most of the tools we use to respond to incidents, logs, are hermeneutic artifacts. They, they present their interpretation of the world and we interact mm. with that interpretation. And what I think of as sort of making a distinction between old school metrics and observability is that observability is more of an embodiment relationship. Uh, observability lets you ask whatever question you want. You're mm. not restricted to what you specifically remember to log or to mm. count. Exactly. Uh, and this is, now you're getting into the area where I think actually SDS, now we have, we have talked about a lot about uh, SDS in a uh, sort of industrial context here, but I think it's even, it not, it's not less, maybe even more relevant now, because especially when we're working, when we're moving into the so-called fourth industrial uh, revolution, where the machines is taking over more and more. Like, for example, AI uh, or machine learning or whatever, right? Because then the machine is taking more and more control of our lives. So I think we need this more than even before because the, the machines before were simple in comparison and they were not designed by somebody in the same sense that, for example, an AI or if a machine learning, which actually develops this, not, 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 I wouldn't say AI because it's still a algorithm underneath, but it, it does have some learning in it and we don't know what consequences of that is necessarily. So I think it's even more relevant now than it was before. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the fourth industrial revolution, what they see that is. I've read something about it. Yeah, if you want to define the, it, it for the listeners. It's the whole. It's, I think they, uh, somebody called it the cyber physical systems. Cyber physical. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so somebody called it cyber physical system. I'm not sure if you're going to go too much into that, uh, to be honest, but. Uh, yeah, so uh, so the fourth uh, industrial revolution is basically about the continuous automation of manufacturing and industrial uh, practices using like um, uh, smart technology, like uh, machine-to-machine communication, like Internet of Things, uh, machine learning, improved communication and self-monitoring and all that stuff. Uh, we have, we, I mean, we see the hint of it, that something is coming, and that is the different type of industry than what we are currently in. I think the industrial fourth and more probably coined in Germany somewhere, but uh, yeah. So there's a definition that something is coming here now that that uh, that is going to put the human even more on the sideline. And I think uh, for us working in IT, we see some of this already. The general public maybe don't at the same level. So this reminds me of this other idea uh, from joint cognitive systems that there are sort of four stages, historical stages in the development of work. There's Mechanization, which replaces human muscle power with mechanical power. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we think of that as starting with the original industrial revolution, but it's actually much older than that you know, with agriculture, for example. And then there's automation, and then there's centralization, and then there's computerization. Mm. And exactly. then centralization has happened on a shorter time span 
and computerization has happened at a very short time span relative to mechanization. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the challenges is that we got really good at mechanization because we've been doing it since 500 BC. We were relatively less good at centering cognition in the work, right? The whole point of mechanization and automa- automation was to take cognition out of the work. And mm-hmm. realizing you have to put it back in, it's becoming much more conspicuous that people have to think to do their work. Yeah. Because we're putting more and more of the work into the machine. And, mm. and yet, in much software system, many software systems, especially like customer-facing systems, we need that software to not just be part of the machine, to not do the same thing constantly on a time scale of weeks and months, we need it to evolve to participate mm. in our cognition mm-hmm. um, as we participate in the larger economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the ironies of this automation, uh, this comes from Bainbridge's 1983 paper, is that when you automate a task, you don't get rid of a task, you make a new task, which mm-hmm. is managing the automation. And this task is quite different from the task you were doing before. And you're you have no experience with it. You may not even have training with it. So automation doesn't get rid of work. Automation mutates work into a new unexpected form. Right. One of the ironies of automation is that now you have created that management of the automation and you think, oh, we have more automation. We can pay the workers less. Wrong. (laughs) You can pay the workers more. Now, collectively, the automation plus the uh, engineers who are managing it are able to do a lot more, but you didn't save money. You added capability, but you did not save money. Hmm. Yeah. And part of that is what you can automate are the things we know how to automate, which are the mechanical tasks. And what's left when you automate all the mechanical tasks are the ones that require thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're moving into now, probably. That's what the fourth industrial revolution is. We try and automate automate the stuff that is probably not Shouldn't be automated, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> this or it is shouldn't why I'm be not... automated in a way that we can't change. No, exactly. Hmm. This, is, this is why I'm not buying stock in AI ops companies. Hmm. So I don't think we figure out, figured out how to automate decision-making yet. No. I don't think we want to automate decision-making. No, I'm, 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 I'm with you. Yes, we again. want to augment, augment, yeah. augment yeah. decision-making. Mm-hmm. Agree. So we're back to that same idea that the SDS said, right? We shouldn't be, uh, you should be complimentary to the machine, not an extension of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's probably a good place to wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a paper, by the way, 10 challenges in making automation yeah. a team player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or you can watch my talk on um, collaborative automation. Yeah. Do we want to do reflections? Sure. I have a short reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, one quote that I wrote down that you said, Tron, in the middle of something was you are capable of taking in stuff that you didn't know you see. Mm. And that speaks to, if you don't know you see it, you can't automate the seeing of it. Uh, Humans are really good at the everything else of what is going on. This is Mm. our human superpower compared to any software that we can design. And that's why I am big on this embodiment relation don't know about the word Mm. but i do love tools that make it easier for me to make and implement decisions Mm. Uh, they give me superpowers 
and then allow me to combine that with my ability to take input from the social system and incorporate that. Mm-hmm. I can give a little bit of an anecdote. Uh, I come from a, uh, my background is not IT. I come from uh, from physics, so astro- astrophysics to be specific. And what what we were drilled in physics and and in stuff like that is that you should take the person out of the system, right? You should close the system as much as possible. So, which, so somebody said you have to take a human out of the system in order to, uh, to uh, observe. So physics is, is, you have no environment, you have no people, there's nothing in it. Like, so it's c- completely closed. What we work in in here is flip. It's complete opposite. We're working in a completely open system where the human part is essential. We so are not subject we, to the second law of thermodynamics. No, we are not. That is highly restricted <laughs> for a closed system. We are not. So, the idea of open system is something I think we all need to take on board. And we are the best one to deal with those open systems. We do it all the time, every day, just walking. We deal with (laughs) complex open systems. I mean, everything. Eating. And actually, one one of the forms or or the ways that openness was thought of is informational openness. Mm. Uh, It's literally about entropy. Taking information. Yeah. Entropy, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and we are best capable of to to control, control that variance. We are the masters of that human. So yeah. let's take advantage of that. So that that's our superpower as humans. Okay, I can go. So we've been talking a little bit about how the cognitive demands of work are changing, and one of the things that's happening is that work is becoming higher tempo. Decisions have to be made more quickly and higher criticality. Computers are really good at making a million mistakes a second. You know, so if you look at something like the Knight Capital incident, right? I love you know, that a, one. a small bug can lose your company half a billion dollars in an instant. So I think what we're seeing is that this complex. If you, so, if you combine that with the idea of requisite variety, the complexity of work is exploding, and what we call human error is actually a human's inability to cope with complexity, I think. And so I think if we want to get human error under control, what we have to get better at is managing complexity, not controlling it. And, and not by we. And by we, we don't mean you as a human get better at this. We mean <laughs> the system needs to support the humans yeah. in managing mm-hmm. additional complexity. Yeah, we, we need to realize that the nature of work has changed, that it presents these new challenges, and that we need to build systems that support people. Mm. Because work has never been this difficult. Both no. social and technical systems. Exactly. Support. Just to bring, bring it back to where we started with the, with the coal mines in England. I mean, working there was hard. It was life-threatening. People died in the mines, right? So you can imagine this must be terrible. But it was a quite close system, to be honest compared to what we have. That environment is fairly closed. It isn't predictable in the same sense, but we are working in an environment that is completely open. It's turbulent even. So, yeah, we need this. We need, we need to focus on the human aspects of things. We can't just treat things as machines. It doesn't work. Thank you for coming to this episode of Greater Than Code. We're happy to be here. Really fun. <laughs> it was a fun discussion. So that about does it for this episode of Greater Than Code. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are. If you want to spend more time with this awesome community, uh, if you donate even $1 to our Patreon, you can come to our Slack and hang out with all of us, and it is a lot of fun. 